Scripture text this evening is uh, John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21, as we continue our series through the Gospel of John. Jesus has just fed the 5,000, and uh, beginning at verse 16, it says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This well-known incident, the fifth sign that John our gospel writer reports this, this well-known incident in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ occurred just a few hours after the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. Having fed 5,000 men besides women and children, so possibly up to 20,000 people with only five loaves and two fish, Jesus then immediately made his disciples get into a boat and cross the Sea of Galilee. It was then that they encountered a storm. The storm was not an accident. The Lord was orchestrating all of these events, and this storm, you can be assured, occurred right at just the right moment according to God's plan. And it was for good reason, as we shall see, that it occurred right after this feeding of the 5,000. For this storm was used to teach an important lesson to the disciples regarding the nature of Jesus' kingdom. And this storm and the related events must have left a deep impression on the minds of the disciples. And there are important lessons that we all can gather as we observe the disciples experiencing the fury of a storm and then witnessing the sign of Jesus walking on the sea. As I mentioned last time, all four gospel writers included the sign of Jesus feeding the 5,000 And it's only Luke who doesn't record the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. And of the three accounts that we do have, John's is the shortest. And the direct impression is that he knows his readers are familiar with the greater details given by Matthew and Mark that include the disciples thinking Jesus is a ghost and Peter temporarily joining Jesus in walking on the water, Jesus' calming of the sea, and then the worship of Jesus by the disciples who confessed Jesus to be the Son of God. At the same time, John John adds his own details, such as the distance they rode before Jesus caught up with them. And besides Jesus' calming of the sea, the additional miracle of the disciples' boat being immediately at the land to which they were going. I want to draw your attention to some details recorded in Matthew's account, and specifically in Matthew 14, 22, that John doesn't include. Where it says there, again, this is Matthew 14, verse 22, immediately he, that is Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Now, we might not think that this information is particularly relevant, except that the usual practice was for Jesus to leave the disciples to dismiss the crowds. In addition, the text conveys that the Lord sent his disciples away with a sense of urgency. If we only had Matthew's account of this event, we would not know why Jesus was so eager to send the disciples away 
But John's account of this same event tells us why. And the problem was what was that the crowds wanted to make Jesus king. John 6.15 tells us, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. We understand that this multitude didn't understand that the miracle of the feeding of, uh, of, of these people was meant to convey a spiritual lesson of who Jesus was. They didn't understand from the multiplying of the bread and loaves that Jesus was the bread of life come down out of heaven to feed his people spiritually, as he will explain in the discourse that's coming up here in chapter 6. They didn't understand that he was God on earth, come to earth to establish his church, a spiritual kingdom. They're thinking in earthly terms. They think they've hit the jackpot. Here's a man who can provide meals for them, three square meals a day. Here's a man who can finally throw off Roman oppression and give them earthly prosperity. And Jesus knew what they were up to and will say to them when he sees them again, truly I say to you, You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Meanwhile, the disciples struggled with the same thinking. They also tended to fall into this error of thinking that Jesus had come in order to take up a role of of king in Jerusalem. You can probably recall how even toward the end of the Lord's life, they're still talking about who would be the greatest as Christ's right-hand man. They were caught up in that same hype as the crowd and began to contemplate how as Jesus' closest disciples, they would share in his earthly glory as he ascends the throne in Jerusalem. In Matthew 16, Peter rebukes Jesus for saying that he's going to suffer and die and insists that such things are never going to happen. They could not ever imagine that Jesus as this great king, as the Messiah, would ever suffer and die. In Matthew 20, we have the mother of James and John speaking up for her sons, James and John, the writer of this gospel. She's hoping that Jesus will give them, her sons, the highest positions of honor in his kingdom. And Jesus explains that, yes, there will be positions of greatness in his kingdom, but he goes on to rebuke the disciples for having a carnal view of authority and greatness as though the greatness in his kingdom is about exercising authority and being first over others, like we see with earthly kings. Jesus emphasizes that in his kingdom, greatness comes in the way of serving others, and in particular for him, giving his life as a ransom for many. With Jesus just having fed the 5,000, the crowds rallying to make him king, the disciples sharing in that carnal thinking, It comes as no surprise that in order to head off this misdirected enthusiasm, Jesus' first step is to get the disciples out of the way. And uh, Matthew tells us Jesus made them get into the boat and leave. He literally constrained them. He compelled, or we might even translate it, forced them to get into this boat, which indicates that this was something they were not immediately willing to do. But Christ was insistent and ordered them to leave. And having gotten the disciples off in their boat, Christ then dismissed the multitude. And what's going to happen next is another sign of the Lord's deity. But first, the disciples are going to struggle. And when Jesus miraculously appears walking on the sea, they're not going to be expecting him. They don't have that level of faith. And in the end, this sign serves as a lesson in faith as well as 
a lesson in grace. The disciples were now on the Sea of Galilee attempting to make their way west toward Capernaum across a lake that measured around seven miles east and west. And it was no easy task to row that far, but they were used to this. They were fishermen after all. They knew the lake. They knew boats, but they were not counting on this storm that suddenly came upon them halfway across the lake. These storms were unpredictable, though fairly common. The surface of the Sea of Galilee is 682 feet below the level of the Mediterranean Sea, which makes for very hot and humid conditions. At the same time, the Sea of Galilee is surrounded by mountains, and when the cool air of the mountaintops comes rushing down and meets that warm, humid air of the lake, storms arise, and they can be very violent. And according to Christ's plan, such a storm brewed right as the disciples were halfway across the lake. And in order to understand the significance of this event, we must remember that these men were disciples of Christ. Despite their shortcomings, despite their faults, especially their little faith, despite their spiritual immaturity, they had separated themselves from other people, from their earlier lives, to be the Lord's disciples. Later in chapter 6, they will be referred to as the Twelve. And though John, as you can recall, back to chapter 1, um, he only records the very initial calling of only a few of the disciples, by now we understand from the other gospel accounts that all have been officially called, all have left all to follow him. And it's in the midst of following their master's orders to get into the boat and leave that this storm descended upon them. I think it's safe to say that Jesus led them into that storm which brings out an important point in your own lives. Not all of the storms of life are encountered because of disobedience. It is true, as Isaiah writes, that, quote, the wicked are like the tossing sea and that there is no peace for the wicked, Isaiah 57, verses 20 and 21. So some of life's storms, no doubt, are experienced, encountered because of disobedience. Think of Jonah. Some, some storms are the consequences of our sin, but some are sent right when we are on the path of obedience. So there were the disciples explicitly following Christ's orders when they find themselves facing this brutal storm that was testing their resolve and probably leading them to wonder if they were even going to make it. I think they were, they were thinking, this is perhaps, it, perhaps it's all over. And I have said it before from this pulpit, but say it again because we have come to Another passage that teaches the same truth, and it's this, that, that it's a lie that once a person becomes a Christian, life is all sunshine. One person I read um, described this false idea this way, quote, they would have us believe that the Christian life is like an effortless drive in a marvelous limousine. We are cushioned with comforts on the inside, and we are quite unaffected by what happens outside. We do not need to worry about hills or storms or dangers on the road. There are no hills. There are no storm clouds. There are no difficulties. It is all a straight, easy course. In fact, it's downhill. We have nothing but comforts and provisions. There's no battle. There's no wrestling. No dimension that would involve us in a problem or a cross. End quote. People of God, that's a lie. 
And if you fall for this lie, you're not going to know what to do. You're going to be confused. You're going to be disoriented when the problems hit. Uh, you will probably doubt your God and your salvation. No, God sends disasters to his very own. He did this to his disciples at what was an important juncture in their lives. Peter was one of those who was out there in that storm, and he came to understand uh, the, the, the truth of the, the role of, of suffering in our lives. He later wrote in his epistle, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are, you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. And so the disciples, there they are, obediently row, rowing across the lake, encountering one of those storms for which the Sea of Galilee was known. And the disciples, we see, are in a very serious situation. Verse 18 tells us the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Matthew uses a Greek word that refers to waves that were torturing or harassing the boat. Mark's account tells us that they were straining at the oars against a headwind. And so they were heading west, and apparently the wind was from the west, and there they are battling, trying to go into the wind. And John tells us that they had rowed a distance of between three and four miles of the seven miles across, which would place them at about the middle of the lake. And so we can picture them bouncing up and down in fierce waves, trying to row into this roaring headwind. And though familiar with boats and with this lake and even with its storms, they are in this instance clearly struggling. So where was Jesus in all of this? And do we not ask that question at times? Where is Jesus, the one who told them to do this in the first place? Where is he that now his orders have brought them misery? And the text answers these questions for us. Mark tells us that after he had dismissed the crowds, this is Mark chapter 6, verses 47 through the first part of 48, it says he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. So where is Jesus while his disciples are in distress? There on the mountain. While the disciples are on the sea, Jesus is praying. He is there communing with his father, and surely part of that communing involved praying to his father to keep him strong against the temptation to avoid the cross by becoming king. That was the same temptation with which Satan attacked him, remember, in the desert, and which was also presented to him later by Peter, who again told Jesus, you're not going to suffer, you're not going to die. Jesus therefore surely prayed in order to keep his spiritual bearings. But the other part of that prayer must certainly have been for his disciples. While he prayed, he saw his disciples struggling on the sea. We must not imagine that Jesus actually saw them with his eye. After all, it was night when this happened. Jesus wasn't able to see them from the mountaintop many miles away. In fact, when Jesus came to them on the sea, it was the fourth watch, one of the gospel writers tells us, which would mean between 3 and 6 a.m. But this language of him seeing the disciples struggling on the sea is another revelation of his deity. He saw his disciples in his mind because as God, he knows all things. 
And though he was alone, and the text emphasizes this point too, though he was on land, though they were miles out at sea, he knew exactly what was happening to them. Jesus went up on the mountain to pray, and surely his prayers included requests for his beloved disciples. We know that Jesus was not worried about them as they battled this storm. We know that Jesus was calmly praying because this was all part of his plan for them. The storm was intended to have a certain effect upon them that involved spiritual lessons, but his prayers would certainly have, have concerned them learning these spiritual lessons as part of their preparation to be leaders of his church. And by way of application, you can be sure that Jesus knows your struggles. Jesus maybe appears to be distant. You might be tempted to think that because of distance, Jesus being in heaven, that he can't know what you are facing. You might think that your loneliness means that Jesus doesn't care, but of course he does care. Don't for one second doubt that he is right now interceding for you, just as he interceded for his disciples from the mountain. He is praying that your struggles will bring spiritual growth, that your struggles will pr produce the needed fruit in your lives. And Jesus could at any moment take away that struggle that you face, just as he could have immediately stopped that, 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 that storm that the disciples are now caught up in. Now, John doesn't record the earlier miracle of another instance when the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee and in a bad storm. In Matthew 8, we read of the incident when Jesus and his disciples were together in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And this, the boat was being swamped by the waves, but Jesus was asleep. And the disciples woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And he then rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And that incident ended with the disciples marveling and saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Now they're facing another storm. But do they think of Jesus? Have they learned to trust him? Or are they still of little faith? And as a test of their faith, he lets them struggle. And he lets you and I struggle because there's a purpose in it. He waits and he lets the drama continue until the storm has served its intended purpose. He waits even until the fourth watch. And so we know from that detail that the disciples are trying to get across that lake by rowing with all their might and making little to no progress. They're only halfway across after some six to eight hours of rowing. I don't know about you, but my patience would be gone. Why would the Lord put them through this? Why do this when it's so unnecessary? Why do this to them when he can stop it at any moment? Why does he allow things to happen to us that we think is unnecessary? Because it is necessary. These disciples needed this because they needed to know their own helplessness. They needed to come to the end of themselves. And you might ask, well, why? Why does Christ even now require the same thing of all of his disciples? Because there's no place in his kingdom for self-serving, arrogant, overconfident attitudes. Because such attitudes are incompatible with being a humble, selfless disciple of Christ. And because if you would be useful in Christ's kingdom, you have to know your dependence upon Christ. And you have to be convinced that he can help. And he is the one to be called upon for help in those impossible situations that we can't solve. 
Christ had large plans for his disciples in the building of his church and to make them useful. They needed this trial and they were going to need even more. Paul writes later in 2 Corinthians, we were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. Ever wonder why the Lord makes you struggle again and again because you and I have not learned this very basic lesson yet. And you and I have our moments when we realize we are frail and that we can't solve problems in our own strength, and yet we fail to look to Christ. And sometimes if we do happen to think of him, we figure, well, he's out of touch, he's distant, he's unable to help. And in times of trouble, he should be our first thought. But often we think we just need to put in more of our own effort, or we just give up. And you can see how the trial given to the disciples of Christ brought these issues to the surface, for these were fishermen. If there was ever a time when they were confident, it was in a boat on the sea. But they were brought to see that no matter how much natural ability or experience they had, they couldn't make it. And the great question is, would they look to Jesus? They were so far from where they needed to be spiritually. We have been facing this question, where is Jesus in our difficulties? But do you realize that for these men, these disciples, Jesus didn't even enter their minds in their struggle. They weren't asking where Jesus was. They weren't wondering when he would come and rescue them. Jesus was the last thing on their mind. They were going to be leaders of the New Testament church, and even as they are about to die, they're not thinking of calling out to Jesus for help. John doesn't explain why the disciples were frightened when they saw Jesus walking on the water and coming near their boat. But Matthew and Mark both explain that when Jesus came walking to them on the water, they were frightened because they thought he was a ghost or spirit. They weren't looking for Jesus, eagerly awaiting him coming to rescue them. They had forgotten about Jesus. He had so completely slipped their mind that when he was actually there, they cried out in fear because they couldn't imagine that they were seeing anything but a ghost. Disciples had such little faith. Even though they had been with Jesus several years, you understand, at this point, including when he had calmed the sea before their very eyes, even though they had seen him multiply five loaves and two fish into an abundance, after all of this and more, they still did not grasp, as they should have, who Jesus is. And Mark tells us that they were utterly astounded as Jesus got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. I think often this event is preached as though it is appropriate that we be utterly astounded like the disciples as we think of what Jesus did. And yes, in a sense, we should be amazed. Think of it, for Jesus to walk on water as though he were walking on a hard surface as he stepped on the tops of waves, that's something that defies explanation, that defies what we know of reality. It's hard to imagine, and it astounds us to think of the power involved. And yet the perspective of Scripture is that the disciples shouldn't have been amazed at this. They would not, of course, have been able to guess exactly what Jesus was going to do to help them, but they should have expected something like this from Jesus. What did John say about Jesus, the word, back in chapter 1? It says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made 
that was made. Jesus, the Son of God, created the world. And he created the world to function in an orderly way. That's the basis of science. Nevertheless, God can and does at times suspend his normal modes of operation. Um, it's been suggested that perhaps the better wording would be, rather than to say that he suspends what are often called natural laws, but maybe it would be better to say that he controls aspects of his creation, things like gravity, things like density. Um, he, he controls them to function however he wishes in serving the interests of his kingdom. The disciples were already familiar with Jesus' signs and wonders, his miracles, that no mere man could do. And so they should have recognized that what Jesus did by coming to them, by walking on water, that was for him no big deal. Mark's account rebukes the disciples for their amazement and explains it this way. Mark writes, and they were utterly astounded. And we might think, well, why? Isn't this good? But no, Mark explains. He says, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. After the miracle of the loaves, there should have been no doubt about what Jesus was capable of doing. He's the, he's the divine son of God. So there the disciples were struggling and the Lord was nearby, ready and able to help them, and they failed to pray. They were weak in faith. And you can better understand why Christ felt the need to pray for them. There was so much that needed to be learned if they were going to be the great leaders of the church. Now, Matthew is the only gospel writer that includes the account of Peter walking on the water. We're not going to go into great detail since uh, we're going through John's gospel, and he doesn't even include uh, mention here of Peter walking upon the water. But I do want to mention some general points about that event, about Peter. And first, Peter's impulsive desire to walk on the water is an act of faith. He trusts in the Lord's ability to enable him to walk on the water, and the Lord responded to Peter's request with, Come. And Peter, without hesitation, stepped out of the boat, imagine it, and onto the sea. That's faith. But in the end, Peter's faith was weak. He suddenly saw the wind, or he saw the effect of the wind, probably creating this large surge of waves that was coming toward him, and he became afraid, and fear is the opposite of faith. And apparently the Lord made Peter's walking on water contingent on his faith, and so he began to sink. And Jesus rebukes him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? John leaves out a lot of the details included by Mark and Matthew. He leaves out the part of the disciples thinking they saw a ghost. He left out the part of Peter's weak faith. What John does record is the fact that they were frightened as Jesus came near the boat, but the emphasis is on Jesus' words to them, it is I, do not be afraid. John includes the detail they were glad to take him into the boat. And while John does not mention the wind ceasing once Jesus was in the boat, John presents what has, has often been referred to as a second miracle, that immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. All of the gospel accounts emphasize that through Jesus, in a mere moment, all of the disciples' struggle was gone. Was it not then evident who Jesus is? And Matthew concludes this event in this way. He says, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. The sign was unmistakable. But even in this worship, their hearts were still to a great degree hardened. 
and they still had many miles to travel before they would be spiritually prepared to lead the church. And really, are we any different? Oh, that the Lord would deliver us from hardness of heart. In times of trouble, how readily do we realize we need Jesus and turn to him always and in everything? The message of this passage is that Jesus Christ is God and he is Lord of heaven and earth. He is the creator. Without him, we can do nothing. He is far more than an earthly king over a, a Jewish kingdom, but he is the king of heaven and earth who demands our devotion, who demands that we acknowledge him as Lord of our lives. And until we know this deeply and intimately, we will fail to be the servants, the disciples that Christ would have us to be. At the same time, John's account highlights God's grace. We are reminded that we are not saved and loved only if we have strong faith. Let that soak in. God is patient. He's patient with his disciples. He's patient with us. We're not saved and loved only if we have strong faith. The other gospel writers are not afraid to highlight the disciples' weak faith. And we need that. The Holy Spirit had those accounts recorded because he wants us to be humbled by our weakness as we see ourselves reflected in the disciples' At the same time, we have John's account here, which is more about Jesus' power and his grace and less about the disciples' weakness. As I thought about that, how he left out Peter's little faith as he left out the disciples calling out in fear and thinking they see, they see a ghost. It's almost like John is embarrassed by the disciples' lack of faith and would rather, rather not report it. But John's account is also under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And John's unique account reminds us that the Holy Spirit is loving and patient and praise God that, yes, we need to grow and God sends trials to help us grow, but yet he doesn't feel the need to keep repeating the disciples' failures and ours over and over again as though he's rubbing it in. No, he lovingly encourages us. He helps. He comes to these disciples. He calls to them to not be afraid. He loves them. And he loves us and he makes us glad to have him near. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, may we take these lessons to heart that are revealed here in this fifth sign. Lord, we pray that we would recognize again, of course, the deity of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is indeed your divine Son. And uh, Father, may we recognize in this history, the weakness that pervades us, how little our faith is, how prone we are to doubt, how prone we are to trust in our own strength and our own abilities and our own experience and forget about Christ and fail to call upon him. And when he comes even to help, being surprised. Um, Father, we, we pray that our first response in times of trouble would be to seek you, to seek your help, to seek your grace. And Father, we thank you for the patience that is also demonstrated here in this text of Jesus' love for his disciples. We thank you, Father, that you love us, you save us, you help us even despite our weak faith. We thank you that we are saved by grace. And uh, Lord, we do pray that you would increase our faith. We, we pray that uh, we would be useful instruments in your kingdom, that, that our lives, how we react to problems would reflect that indeed we are your disciples trusting in you. 
Um, so, Father, we pray uh, that you would sanctify us and that you would strengthen our faith. But we thank you, Father, that we're not saved by our strong faith, but we're saved by the one in whom we have put our faith, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.